Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Joe Reed, and this is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. We had been married and spent a two-day honeymoon in the Highlands shortly before the outbreak of war seven years before. A peaceful refuge in which to rediscover each other, we thought, not realizing that while golf and fishing are Scotland's most popular outdoor sports, gossip is the most popular indoor sport. And when it rains as much as it does in Scotland... People spend a lot of time indoors. You just heard Davina Porter back in 1991 narrating the first book in the Sweeping Outlander series by Diana Galbadon. Since then, Davina's gone on to narrate all of the nine unabridged books in the Outlander series, as well as a number of others by Galbadon that takes place in the Outlander universe. Had Davina Porter only narrated these books, her reputation as a world-class narrator would be secure. But Davina Porter has done so much more, narrating hundreds of audiobooks, from classics to mysteries to history to biography, as well as any number of series of books by authors like Anne Perry, Alexander McCall Smith, and M.C. Beaton, to name a very few. And she brings to all of them her attention to detail keen intelligence, subtle characterizations, and a range of voices and accents. It was Davina Porter's voice that brought me to audiobooks with her narration of the Inspector Pitt series. I was just mesmerized by her voice. And all these years later, I still am. And I'm hardly alone. Davina Porter is an Audio Award winner, the recipient of multiple Earphones Awards, and one of Audiophile Magazine's golden voices. She is quite simply a legend, and she's recently announced her retirement, although, mercifully, she is leaving the door open, she says, if the perfect book comes along. Her last book, narrated at the end of 2021, is fittingly enough number nine in Diana Galbadon's Outlander series, Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone. And here we are again, with Claire and Jamie and Brianna and Roger. Not only has Davina been narrating these books over a 30-year period, there was a seven-year gap between books eight and nine. And I wanted to know what it was like for Davina Porter to return to these characters after so long a time. 
Well, the first book that, as you said, I did in 1990, and it was rather different then because the book had already been published and the audio version came out, so there was no strain, there was no pressure on recording it. I didn't realize she was going to write such a canon of literature, but uh, going along, I had made my notes on each character so there are the good old stalwarts. Obviously, there's Claire and, and uh, Jamie, and then later on, Brianna and her husband and all the subsidiary characters. So I have a series of rather scruffy little notebooks with the names of every character that uh, she has ever put into one of her novels. And that those, those are my references. And because it is such a long session in a booth, they, they fix. There are some characters do not leave you. So when the next book came along, I could pick up. And yes, then, then we were, I think the second one was in France. So there's a whole slew of the French court. So it goes. And then each time there are characters that come in and vanish. And then occasionally there will be a small character that in the next book has a, a major part to play. So the storytelling is fascinating. And the way I just kept it alive, if you like, was I never throw anything out, which my husband will attest to. <laughs> I really do need to declutter. But I have all my hen scratchings of every character in, in all the books. So the last one was rather a long wait. But again, they're still there in your head. Now, some books, I'm afraid I can read and totally forget. And you may even remind me of titles. And I think, oh, yes, I did do that one. Some books, the characters stay with you. And with the Gabaldon series, the characters stayed with me. Well, that final audiobook was a whopping 900 pages and over 47 hours long. When did you get a copy so you could begin to go through it and discover new characters? Well, it was a little bit piecemeal. I did have various passes as far back as May, but they were never recordable. But it did give me a gist of, oh, this is a new section. This, these are new people coming in. But it did keep changing. It actually changed up to the very last moment because when I came into the studio finally to record, what I had been given to read at home uh, had been tweaked or some totally rewritten. So it was very fresh all the time <laughs> till we finally finished, um, I think it was November. When you first get a book, like the first book in the Outlander series, say, what was your process of arriving at the voices? Especially with that, it's not as though it's just one or two Scots accents. You had many. It's a range of characters, ages, and sexes. Well, in, in any good book, or the way I approach any novel, obviously you read it top to bottom. You must. The clues can be there. The clues can be the writer has already told you. Lord John, this is a member of the aristocracy, he will have been educated. He will have been educated. You, you also check, when did Harrow start? When was Eton there? Well, yes, they are way, way back in English history. So you know the level of education of a person. Now, the next character might be extremely bright, but not educated. That doesn't mean they're stupid by any means, but therefore their conversation will be good. And then you will have a character that you know has really no education, perhaps a farm worker, and put out to work as soon as they could pick stones out of the field, that sort of thing. 
So the clues are there in any novel. And if they're not, and if they're a minor character, you can have great fun with them because that's when you can use an odd accent um, and you think, well, I, I think this will be fun to do this one. You couldn't possibly use that accent for a major character because it could possibly turn people off or they may not understand you. So those are the, the characters you think, well, I think these are minor. And at the end of the book, you say, yes, they were minor. They were half a page back in the day. Every book, I approach it the same way. I read the book. I make a list of characters. I jot down age if it's there, social standing if it's there, education, etc. Class, I hate to use the word, but class is, is inherent, certainly through England and still. Scotland, very different there. Good education for the most part. But many Scots leave, as indeed my husband did. Scotland is a small country with not a great many assets, but their education is first class. So now you've already got a structure. So the next thing, having made the characters, ages, give, I might say, light voice, like cultivated voice, gruff, um, unpleasant character, aggressive. So that gives me a tone in the voice. Then I make a list of words. Have I ever actually read these out loud? No, I haven't. <laughs> but is, is it Warwick in England? Is it Warwick in Rhode Island? It depends where you are and who is saying it. So that's my next list. And that gets sent off to the folk that can tell me how to pronounce things. And sometimes I will disagree. Sometimes I'll say, no, no, no. It may say uh, Rowan, but it is Rowan. It's a Rowan tree and always has been. It's a Scottish burn. And you've got to put an R. You can't say a Scottish burn because that, that makes that's more horror of a fire thing. So that's my next thing. And that gets sent off to... The, the souls that give me a phonetic pronunciation. Best of all, of course, is if they give you a, um, an audible pronunciation for the Gaelic, which is a very strange language indeed, because what you are looking at does not make the sound that one ends up uh, saying. So that's how I approach a book, always have. I think always will, though I think there won't be so many coming now, because I can say I'm officially retired. That's not to say if the best book in the world isn't presented, I may come out of retirement. That's how I've always approached books. I always appreciate your subtlety. For example, with Claire, when called for, there can be a smile in her voice that, you know, isn't over the top or a tear if she's distressed. And I really appreciate that subtlety that you bring to it. That's also very clear. Well, you see, I am Claire. I don't care that Katrina, um, the gal that's doing Outlander series, sorry, she's a Johnny-come-lately. I have lived with Claire since 1990. I understand that woman. I wish I were that woman. So she is so resourceful. And yes, it is in the writing. I think that she must be one of Diana's favorite characters because she is so well-written. He turned me round to face him. I want you, Anian. He said softly, Will you lie with me? It may be the last time we have any privacy for some while. I opened my mouth to say, Of course, and instead yawned hugely. I clapped a hand to my mouth, removing it to say, Oh dear, I really didn't mean that. He was laughing, almost soundlessly. 
Shaking his head, he straightened out the rumpled quilt I'd been sitting on, knelt on it, and stretched up a hand to me. Come, lie with me, and watch the stars for a bit, Sassenach. So Claire was very, very easy to find a level and to find a personality. Did you speak to Diana Galbadon before you narrated the first book? No, I, I actually had not heard of her. But you speak to her now, your friends, I'm assuming. I, I have yeah. spoken to her now, yeah. yes, and we have emailed. And she was very helpful when I would be doing a library presentation and she could send me a little chunk of her book that I could read. I'm curious about the narrative voice itself, which is just as important as the characters. And each book really has a narrative voice of its own. If you think of Outlander or The Mists of Avalon, that narrative voice is so different from the 15-book series you did written by uh, C.S. Harris. Yes. Well, again, um, I agree with you 100%. Back in the day when I first started recording... It was with recorded books, and they recorded unabridged classics. Now, I, growing up in England, I mean, we had Dickens, and we had Shakespeare, and we almost had these books far too young to appreciate them. And I remember reading them and thinking, oh, these are interminable. But when you narrate them, they come alive. And I have also thought, well, I enjoyed the, the dialogue, but I thought there's a big chunk before you get to the dialogue, and if you don't make that narrative interesting, you're going to have somebody just say, well, I'm not even going to bother to get to the end of chapter one. So you had to find an interesting narrative voice. Now, I've always been very fond of the sound of my own voice. So back in the day when I was at school, my favorite classes were English, and the thing I found so easy to do when you had to go home and learn a poem, absolutely so easy. I just said it out loud to myself a couple of times and realized I enjoyed that kind of narration. And then that led me into acting, which has been an incredible help in choosing character voices. And the plus is you are telling the story for the author, but you're also making the characters come alive and you can distinguish between them because you're also thinking as an actor's ear here. If I were on stage with these people, the plus being in the booth, these people answer to you. You're not waiting for another actor who's dropped a line or is trying to upstage you. You are in control of all your characters. So training as an actress has been an incredible help in selecting voices and making choices. Is this a short, sharp, funny repartee? Is this much more meaningful because you know what's going to happen. You don't want to give the story away, but uh, just listen to that, how that voice changes. Do I have to listen more carefully to this person? You don't, you don't do a throwaway line there. By reading the book over and over, and you, that is my, the way I approach things, I never read a book once. You read it, you make notes, you reread it, you then decide how much you think you're going to do in the studio with a few pages extra in case you have a particularly good session. So I can't tell you how many times you've actually read the book before you sit down and record the book, but that makes a good, fluid, fluent recording. And that also speaks to the pacing, which is always important but really vital in longer books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder 
How you handle parts in books that might be regarded as, I don't know, filler, which unfortunately some books have, and I certainly can skim if I'm reading, but you can't. Not only do you have to read every word, you have to keep us interested. Well, again, that's part of, if you like, my job. It can be filler, but somebody out there is listening. Somebody may not regard this as filler. Somebody may regard this as really interesting, and that's who I read to. And I try to make it as interesting. I have recorded books that I really haven't cared for, no names, but there's somebody out there that really wants to hear it. Therefore, I read to that person, even if it's only one. And you do. The filler is, is part of the, the art of narration, if you like. When you first read Outlander 30 years ago, were you surprised by the fairly explicit and certainly passionate sex scenes in the book? Well, yes, I was, being somewhat upright and moral, <laughs> strong Presbyterian background. I read it and I thought, oh, mercy, how am I going to read this? If it's over the top, it's ridiculous. If it's underplayed, it's dull. Well, fortunately, uh, at that time, Kathy Gormley was, was my engineer, so we were two ladies together. So I took a deep breath, and I read it, and I thought, oh, Lord, I don't even want to look at her. So I took a break. I said uh, to Kathy, I need to take a break. I didn't know how successful I'd been, but when I came out, without a word, she handed me a cigarette. <laughs> so I thought, okay, uh, enough said. I mean, neither of us smoked. This was just sort of a, a you know, a sort of symbolic The thing. cigarette after so sex. So then we went, a cigarette <laughs> after sex, exactly. And so we both went out and I had a cup of coffee and we had a good giggle. And I thought, well, I've broken the ice on that one. That's my first sex scene. It was obviously fine. I find the sex scenes almost easier than the, the, the graphic violence that I find quite difficult to read. That was my next question oh. because I, I yeah. fast forward through it. I, I can't listen. It's too, no. It really is graphic violence. And it was horrid, particularly in the last book. And I thought, well, it's there. Part of your job, my dear. Just take a deep breath and read it. But it was, it was, um, it was unpleasant. But that's that's it. I mean, that's it was only part of the book, and the rest there were some lovely scenes, and some lovely stories. So you get through that. That was just that particularly bad chapter. For me, not not for somebody else listening to it. Maybe they yeah, loved it. No, for me so. too. I, I'm there with you. <laughs> <laughs> have you watched the series at all, Davina? I have not deliberately. I have the voices in my head. I've had them for thirty years. I can't say that I sound masculine. I hope to feel that, that, that Jamie's voice and all the male characters come over as less feminine. I try to lead more of a level tone, not a monotone, but more level. But to listen to the men, I think, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't sound like that. I don't want to try and sound like Claire or any of the other characters that I've recorded I don't want to try and be a pale copy. That way, literally, madness lies. I want to be consistent. Claire at the beginning obviously sounds younger, but Claire is a 60-year-old now. But I, I didn't want to look and see and think, that's not how I envision that character. 
So I have not watched any of the Outlander series deliberately. You came from theatre. Um, how and, and why did you add audiobooks to your quiver? Ah, well, back in the day, there was a, there still is, there was a, a paper that came out, I think, Thursday, every Thursday. And backstage came out, and I was skimming through, and of course that gives all the auditions everywhere. And right in the back, it said, wanted native-born Scott to record Culloden. So I said to Gus, I said, well, I'm not a native-born Scot, but I've listened to you for God knows how many years, so I can do a Scots accent. My mother was a Scot. She was from St. Andrews, so that was East Coast. All Gus's family are Glasgow or in the Edinburgh area, so there's two accents there. So I sat down at my table in the kitchen and literally in a little handheld, sent off a tape, and I didn't think any more of it. And by this time, we were living in Connecticut, so back came, come into New York for an audition. Well, in those days, audition meant, you know, high heels, suit, makeup, the whole bit. The fact it was audio didn't matter. <laughs> so that's a whole nother story, being dropped off by a very kind taxi driver at a, an endless street. And he said, are you sure this is where you're supposed to go, ma'am? And I said, oh, yes, yes. It's down there on the left somewhere. Well, it was sort of warehouses, which is where the first studio was because the walls were so thick. And he said, well, I can't come down there because it's a one-way street. He said, but if you get down there and it's not what you think, he said, give me a wave and I'll come down and rescue you. And I thought, mercy, what have I got myself into? Anyway, fast forward, I recorded. And Claudia said, well, we're really uh, wanting a native-born Scots man. And I said, oh, you, you didn't say that. It was just a native-born Scot. She said, never mind, I think we will be calling you for other books, but thank you very much for coming in. So about three months later, she called and she said, are you still interested in doing Culloden? I said, absolutely, which, which I should add is a history, a narrative voice, and it is a, a genuine history of the Battle of Culloden and all the sadnesses that happened before and afterwards. But I could say the lochs and I could get my chops around the various uh, clans so I said, what happened to the native-born Scots? She said, well, we had quite a few tapes, and they were totally incomprehensible. So she said, we'd like you to do it. So that was the start of my career, and that was a history. And in those days, you know, you weren't chosen for one book. You, you could have a whole range. And that's when I really enjoyed doing The Red and the Black, The Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Anna Karenina. Tearing open the telegram, he read it through, guessing at the words misspelled as they always are in telegrams, and his face brightened. Matvey, my sister Anna Arkadyevna will be here tomorrow, he said, checking for a minute the sleek, plump hand of the barber cutting a pink path through his long, curly whiskers. Thank God, said Matvey, showing by this response that he, like his master, realized the significance of this arrival. That is, that Anya Arkadyevna, the sister he was so fond of, might bring about a reconciliation between husband and wife. That's how I got started. It just didn't snowball from there. It was just a good, steady, would you like to do this book? Yes, I would. I have turned down some books. You don't turn down too many because then they start to think that you're a bit, um, a bit standoffish. But some books I knew I wasn't right for. I just knew it. And I didn't want the listener to be disappointed. 
I didn't want the author to be disappointed. So I have had some choices. I've also turned down books that I think maybe I should have done it, but not too many of those. They're usually pretty good, certainly recorded books, about pairing narrators with the content. I'm curious about what might have surprised you when you got into the work of audiobook narration. How tiring it is. It is very consuming, apart from the the preparation. Actually getting into the booth, you have to sit so still. And I learned to my cost, your clothing, silk rustles, cotton crackles, leather creaks. I have the most disobedient stomach in the world. If it's empty, it complains. If it's full, it gurgles. You suddenly find you've got a and you don't want that in a recording, or you suddenly develop a sibilant S, and nobody wants to hear that, or the odd whistle that comes out. You learn to control yourself. You learn to sit very, very still. You concentrate on the words, and you record. I mean, in the booth, time is money. You can't sort of think, oh, well, you know, I can spend the whole day here. I'm going to get paid for the whole day. No, you can't do that. You've got to be efficient, and you've got to really be concentrated, and by golly, that's tiring. That surprised me. Yeah. You'd think, oh, well, I'm not talking any more loudly to you than I would be if you and I were in the same room. So that's the same. And you can talk for hours with your friends and your family. But in a booth, it's also keeping absolutely still. And that is very hard. Physically, it is very, very draining, and that surprised me. It really is. And when folks say to me, well, I love to read to my grandchildren and I've been told I've got a good voice. Do you think I could be a narrator? And I say, well, you've also got to be, have great stamina. You, you have to focus and you have to almost let your life go by until that book is done. So that surprised me. Do you miss the collaboration of theater, of working with others, of working off of others when you're in a booth? No. I found as I was getting older, it was harder to think on my feet. And in fact, the last play, and I said to myself, this is the last play, the young man I was working with hadn't really bothered to learn his lines. He'd learned the gist. Now, I am an actress that needs the cue line. I mean, that's why plays are written so well and, and good plays are. The cue line is always in the speech before. And that triggers you off. But he would sort of smile. And I thought, okay, you started your speech and now you've stopped it. And now you've smiled, crossed your legs and you're looking at me. And I'm supposed to come in. And I thought, I can't keep covering like this. I can't do it anymore. So that was my last time on stage. I have loved acting. I really have. And I do miss the rapport and what you get from the audience. There's nothing like a live performance. And there's nothing like getting a laugh. I mean, you really feel you're on top of the world when you get a laugh. And there's nothing also like hearing a pin drop when you've played a particularly dramatic scene and you know the audience is out there and there's no rustling and there's no coughing and it's wonderful. But it's also wonderful to be in a booth and have complete control over your characters. You know who's going to answer you. It's going to be you. And you've read the book. You know the people. You're happy in what you do. And quite honestly, to me, it was a job from heaven. 
I love to read. I love to read out loud. I love to act. And here it all is. Between the covers of a book, be it small or be it large. So, yes, I do like the control that I am given when I read an entire novel. And it's lovely to know that, I mean, uh, Sunday Philosophers Club was supposed to be four books. And I think it ended at nine. No Greek at all. I don't have a word of Greek, I'm afraid. Not one. Neither do I, said Isabel. And yet does that stop me expressing views on Aristotle or Plato while I'm about it? Not to mention the Stoics. She laughed. Aren't we a pair? Completely Greekless. I like authors that <laughs> realise they're onto a good thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I would certainly come, quote, out of retirement if McCall Smith did another book, because I love that. And in fact, we, we were in Scotland, and um, I remember got into the taxi, and I said, I want you to take me over to Merkiston. And he said, what on earth would you want to go there for? And I said, well, it's been in a book, and I want to see the area of Edinburgh where it is. And I found where... Um, a little delicatessen was, and I saw all the streets. And the, the cab driver thought this was the greatest thing. So he insisted that Gus and I got out and he took our photographs again. The, gosh, the wind was just about lifting the skin off your face on that particular day. So I, I do like to find, if I can, I will go to where these places have been. But that gives you good background too. I'm curious because you overlapped on the stage and in the booth, you you did theater mm. as you were um, narrating books, and I'm just curious curious about like calibrating a skill your skills because in the theater you need to be able to reach the balcony, whereas with audio, an audio book you're literally in somebody's ear. It's so much more intimate. All right, two things. As a child, I was a swimmer. Then when I became a college swimmer, and I came to the part where. You're either going to train and become a, quote, swimmer, or there's another life out there. So I've always had incredible lung capacity. I find that by being able to pitch your voice to reach the back of a balcony and to have that sound and to have that diaphragm in the booth, that gives you the stamina to sit and read for five hours. Never five hours straight. You can't do that. But it gives you the stamina to sit and do a good recording. So all these things have added up to make me as a narrator. The acting gives me, when you're reading a book, you can almost think, okay, here's character one, here's character two. This is one I'm, I must not do an over-the-top voice because this will be boring or people will turn off. This is somebody I can have fun with. So the acting and all that training and all the, the stage work gave me the ability to cut and splice with characters in a book. And when the author does not give you any hints, that's when you think, okay, this is what I'm going to do with this person or these people. It's all, it all comes together, and it's all, if you like, skills acquired, or life skills, if you like, but breathing and um, just stamina. And thank goodness I've always been blessed with very good health, which has helped. Do you speak to the author if the author is alive? Not always, no. I have actually auditioned for authors who've not liked me because their character in their head doesn't sound like me. And that's fine. That's a privilege. 
I have spoken, I have met with Alexander McCall Smith just because we bumped into each other. And I was in the audience when he was doing a library presentation. And he's one of the funniest men and one of the sweetest men. And I went up and introduced myself. So we had a long chat afterwards, which was lovely. Yeah, I have spoken to some authors. And I have had authors, um, writers, I should say, who have then emailed me to say thank you so much. It wasn't what I had considered my characters would sound like, but I think they sound so much better the way you've done them, which I've always prized. I think that's lovely. Well, I think certainly a narrator has an abil- the ability to really enhance a book. There's no question about that, which is why I, w- I would always choose the narrator in an audiobook rather than the author. Well, I always think the skill in narrating is not narrating a good book. That is there. It's narrating a bad book and making it good. And I will not ever, ever tell you what I have narrated and I considered, quote, a bad book. But it's the same thing. Somebody out there wants to listen to it. And in fact, I had a lady come up and say how much she'd enjoyed this particular book, which is, I thought was one of the ones I was even surprised had been published, let alone uh, recorded. And that's who you read to. You're not a judge. You are a conduit. The book is there. You want to make it sound the best you can. You want to make the reader say, oh, it's over. That's a shame. You want them sitting in the driveway, listening to the end of the chapter before they go in. You want them stuck in traffic, thinking, I'm not mad. I've not got road rage. I can sit here and listen to the book before we move on. So that's that's also a plus. I'm curious if your career as an audiobook narrator affected the way or affects the way that you read for pleasure. Yes, it really does. Because I find I'm reading the book as though I were about to narrate it. And then I think, oh, well, no, this isn't good. No, I wouldn't say that. And no, this character is not behaving as they should. So it, it's, and sometimes you read a book and you think, well, why haven't I narrated this? Because if the book is out, it, somebody's already narrated it. Why wasn't I called for this? So yes, you, you, I do still very much read for pleasure, but I also read with an idea of how would I approach this as a narrator. It, it, it's interesting how it changes your attitude toward pleasure reading rather than uh, working reading. And do you listen to audiobooks? No, I don't. And I don't ever, ever, ever listen to me. Because if I do, I think, why did you say that? What a sound like that? That's a ridiculous voice to use. What on earth were you thinking? I never wanted to be so discouraged by listening to me that I would never go and do another one. No, I don't. I will say, my very first book that I narrated, which was Culloden, and I sent it to my step-mother-in-law, and she's a Scot. And I, I also sent her another, by another, um, a very good, um, good friend of mine and also a very good narrator. And I sent her two because I didn't want to be boastful. And she, she called me back and she said, Oh, Davina, I loved your book. I took it up to bed and within five minutes I was sound asleep. <laughs> So, you see, I have my soporific views. So, if ever, if you need a nightcap, listen to one of my books. According to my mother, my stepmother-in-law, she will be sound asleep. <laughs> but again, my mother said, oh, that's nice. Oh, well, all right. That, that will keep you out of trouble. And then my cousin's wife said, who on 
earth would pay to listen to you read. So, oh, God. <laughs> you, you become very humble. Oh, hey, this is England. This is Britain. You don't push yourself forward. Well, at least you didn't in my generation, you know. You're just being snitty and you're being, you must be put down. So, anyway. My mum always said when she said, um, are you ever going to get acting out of your system? And I said, no, mum, when they nail the coffin lid down. But once she knew that my husband approved of it, then suddenly, because my husband was always her blue-eyed boy. She, he was also a Scot, you see. So uh, he could do nothing wrong. But once he approved of my acting, quote, in italics, she, she came round to it. She thought that was okay. But the coffin hasn't been na- nailed down, and you have no, decided not. to retire. But you're keeping it has the back not. door I've decided open. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I will be set upright in a mausoleum somewhere with a microphone, so I can yell if they've they've made a mistake. <laughs> but I love the way it's as though it's come full circle, beginning with the Battle of Culloden and ending with Outlander. Exactly, which is just after that. Well, it's later than because what are we now in 1770, aren't we? And Culloden was 1745. But informed by, I mean, Outlander is so informed oh, yeah. by that battle. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's Scottish history. And then, of course, it becomes American history. But, uh, yeah. And when you look back at your career, which I'm sure you must be doing if you're this close to retiring, how, how do you think about it? Very privileged. I've, I have read and recorded some wonderful books that I wouldn't necessarily have read. As I say, reading unabridged classics. And it is interesting, and I would urge everybody, even though I know some books should be abridged, you should read the unabridged. You can always fast forward, because I did read, record a book, unabridged, and then I was asked to do an abridgment. And I I asked if that was you know, conflict of interest. Well, it wasn't a problem because it were two separate markets. Well, the abridgment took out a whole story. It took out a whole subplot. And and the abridgment made no sense. So, yeah, stick with unabridged books. I wonder, thinking about the attributes of a good narrator, what advice would you give to somebody who was thinking about this as a career? Always have the interest in your novel. Make it bright and informative. I mean, you are not the judge of this novel. If you've accepted it, then you don't put your, oh, this is terrible. Oh, well, I'm going to give this away in chapter one because this book isn't worth reading. No, any book that you approach, you approach, really, it's the best thing that's ever been written. I want to record this book. I love this book. I'm going to make you want to listen to it. I'm going to make you want to be sorry that it's ended. I'm going to make you want to look for the next book with this author. Or even better, even better, you come in and you find an author and you realize to your joy that this is like the eighth book in the series and you haven't read the first seven. So you've got all that to go back on. And and even if the the books are complete in themselves, you, you've got an author that you with a lot. It's almost sad when you read a very good new author with the first book, because then you've got to wait for the second. So, which is not one of my, I'm not patient. I am not a patient person. I'm a very impatient person. But I think a lot of that energy can then be sublimated into what I'm narrating. So again, enjoy what you've got. 
really, uh, again, be the conduit for the author, for the story, for the writer, and enjoy it. Because if you enjoy it, your, your listener will enjoy it. And that has been true for you for a, an incredible career. And the joy that you've given me is, I, I really can't thank you enough. Well, that's, that's lovely. No, I can't imagine a better career for me. And I would like to go on and on. Um, but I'm afraid, I hate to say it, I ain't getting any younger. And the energy isn't there anymore. The stamina isn't there Because the voice is certainly still there. Yeah, it, 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 I'm not quavery, am I? And not a I bit. really want to be. No, no. So <laughs> I tell you, though, being an old lady, sometimes I can be an old lady, and it does help me get ahead of cues, which is very naughty this day and age. But I can suddenly be very frail and very, oh, do you mind if I just go and sit over there and will you call me when you're ready? So it does help. <laughs> and I so. and I have to and I have to ask, there is going to be a tenth Outlander book. Well, let me let me be honest, in seven years, um, I will be ninety-one. I really don't think at ninety-one I will be able to read Claire. Actually I'm I will be ninety if it's in seven years, but I my eighty-fourth birthday is coming up. So add on seven. I'll be I think probably have to record in the supine position and the microphone will be up. It'll be like being on a permanent MRI. No, I can't honestly see me recording number 10. I will pass the baton to whoever has it. I don't envy them, Davina. I truly don't. <laughs> I, I actually hope I'm around to listen to them and then I can critique them. <laughs> that would be fun. We'll invite you on be behind fun. the mic and we'll yes, critique it. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, that would be lovely. No, I, I really, seriously, I could not have asked for a, have, a, a better career. I've had so much happiness, and considering as an actress, uh, my age would act against me, and the stamina isn't there to take on, you know, eight shows a week, that sort of thing. Can't do it. But you can record. You can. But I have decided I would rather finish now on a high, than have someone say, "Have you heard Davina Porter recently?" Oh, it's sad. No, that is not my obituary. I go out with guns blazing and flags flying, my dear. I applaud that, and I think that's a good place to leave it. Davina, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Bravo. Thank you so much. That is Golden Voice and award-winning narrator Davina Porter. You can find reviews for well over 100 of her books, including Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone by Diana Galbadin, or The Geometry of Holding Hands by Alexandra McCall Smith at audiophilemagazine.com. Go check them out, and then follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. You've been listening to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. The music is William Ross Chernoff's Nomad Four-Way. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.